The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles open to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We've been working our way through the book of Romans at a pretty slow clip, and we are this week and next week away from finishing chapter 4. And all I can tell you is it's going to get slower in chapter 5. This is just incredibly rich material that we're we're walking through, and I am blessed more and more as we study this epic epistle. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 22 today. Follow along as I read. In hope, against hope, he, that is Abraham, believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Female fertility is one of the most studied phenomenons in medical history. The amount of time and research and money spent to either achieve pregnancy, in our day and age we can even say prevent pregnancy, is astonishing, it's staggering. However, one of the contrasts, excuse me, the constants in all of those studies through all of the years in the history of thinking about and studying fertility is a bracket called the prime years of productivity. In other words, there's a 15-year window in which the physical bodies of both the male and the female are best suited to procreate. Now, in all the research that I referenced in looking uh, for this, at this for the sermon, the best, uh, most consistent bracket for that was between the ages of 20 and 35. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know women who've been pregnant much younger than that and women who've been pregnant much older than that, and that's certainly the case. The current world record, by the way, is a woman uh, conceiving naturally and giving natural birth is 59. The point is that there's always been simple limits to fertility. You say, why are we talking about that in church? Because that's the prime issue at stake in the passage that's before us today. Now, I want to just take a little footnote, and I understand that talking about this is a very delicate subject. We're going to deal with the biblical text, and it's very clear what's going on in the text, but I'm also aware that for many, and even some in our church, that's been a struggle and a challenge. And just in mentioning that, I just want you to know how we want to bear that burden with some of you who've struggled with that. We want to love you and care for you and pray with you. 
And you also should look at the case of Abraham and Sarah today and know that that people today aren't the only people who've ever struggled with this issue. Turn back to Genesis chapter 15. We need to remember the scene, and we're going to spend a significant time this morning in Genesis before we get to Romans, because if we rightly understand the narrative in Genesis, then the book of Romans makes sense. But to not understand what's going on in the book of Genesis with the, with the two primary characters of Abraham and Sarai, who will become Sarah in this passage, then you're going to miss the whole point of what's going on in Romans 4. Let me remind you of what happened back in that day. In Genesis 15, look at these first few verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Stop right there. Abraham recognizes that he is getting older, he is childless, he's already taken the very responsible stewardship of seeing to that that his earthly possessions were cared for uh, by Eleazar, his, his servant. He had created a will and testament. He had willed all that he had in all of his stewardship to this man, Eleazar. And Abram said, since you have given me no offspring, no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. What is he saying there? Notice the theology of fertility. Who opens and who closes the womb? Hannah repeats this in 1 Samuel 2. It's the Lord. God, you have given me no offspring. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying... This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, Abraham. He shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens. Count the stars. If you're able to count them. Ever been out where there's no light pollution And just look up at the stars. Can you imagine trying to take sectors and mark it off and count those individual pinpoints of light? He said to him, so shall your descendants be. They're going to be like that constellational heavenly display. Verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and God reckoned it, counted it, to him as righteousness. Sounds good, doesn't it? I'm going to make a promise to you, Abraham. I'm going to give you a child from your own body, not Eliezer, not someone who you've appointed. You're going to have a son. There's a problem with that. Month after month went by, and Sarah didn't become pregnant. So something happens in chapter 16. Turn over there. Even back, it's reiterated back up in uh, chapter 15, verse uh, 18. Your descendants 
I've given to this land. Your descendants, there's no descendants, there's no baby. So Sarah decides it's time to act. God has made a promise. God has not acted. Therefore, God needs my assistance. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Do you see their understanding of fertility again? This is all rooted in God's providence and sovereignty. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps, look at the language here. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Now ladies, can you just put yourself in this context for a second? Hagar, she's going to become a wife in a minute to Abram. Have a child, and then that child will be mine and Abraham's. Mine and Abram's. Do you already feel what's coming? And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, as any good husband might. Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, and Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, the Egyptian maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. One of the strangest verses in the Bible. A woman gives another woman to her husband as his wife. We'll study polygamy in the Old Testament at another time, okay? He went into Hagar, and she conceived. Isn't that interesting? All of these decades, and he goes in, and she's instantly pregnant. When she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Interesting. God had made a promise. Sarai and Abram together conspire to help God with this promise. Now, if you continue on in chapter 16, they are fully convinced that now Ishmael, who was born to Hagar, was the promised seed. Sarai wasn't really happy about that, and uh, that was a constant source of, of struggle between her and Hagar. But go over now to chapter 17. I want to pick up the story in verse 15. Another time we'll come back and talk about the, the, the source of the Arab nations and how they, the Egyptian woman came with this now Jewish man and created the Arab nations, but that's not for this study. Right now we want to dial in on Abraham and Sarah. Verse 15, chapter 17. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. That shall be her name. And I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and worshipped. He fell on his face, and he thanked God. It's not what it says, is it? And he fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, not very aware that God is omniscient, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Now we find out what's going on with Abraham. He's 100. 
Well, Sarah, who is now, we find out something about Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What is he saying? God, I know what you're thinking, but we've already taken care of this plan. Let's let Ishmael live before you. He'll inherit this promise. But God said, no. Now, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant, my promise, with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He will become the father of 12 princes. I will make him a great nation. And God did. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now the promise is getting specific. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then God took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with money, every male among them in Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in that very same day, as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 which tells you he's going to be about 14 years older than Isaac when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In that very same day, Abraham was circumcised in Ishmael, his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money and a foreigner were, were, who were, were circumcised with him. Chapter 18. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And he was sitting at the tent in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now that tells us something. He instantly, intuitively, instinctively, and observingly recognized there was something unique about these men. These weren't just your average travelers. He said, my Lord, you don't usually do that to the average traveler. If now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your, pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought to wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go, since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do, as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. This, does this scene happen at your house? The man invites somebody home, and the wife is left to make it happen. Never happens in our house. So Abram hurried into the house, into the tent, said to Sarah, quickly prepare three measures of flour, knead it, make bread cakes. Abraham also read to the herd, uh, took a tender choice calf, gave it to the servant. He hurried to prepare it, to butcher it, to get some good back straps, some good fillet. He took the curds of milk and the calf, and he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. Now, listen, tents are not very acoustically soundproof. Okay? That's going to be really important in a moment. And he says, surely I will return to you at this time next year. And behold, guess what? Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. 
Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. Critical point. Sounds like a comedy show because Sarah follows her husband, Abraham. Sarah laughed to herself and said, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being so old? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Sarah said that if you go back in the, first, in the previous verse to herself, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, and at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I didn't laugh, because she was afraid. And he said, actually, no, you did laugh. Now take all that story and come back to Romans chapter 4. At 100 and at 90 years old, Abraham and Sarah knew that they were well beyond the years for Sarah to get pregnant and to conceive, to to have a child. They wanted to see the promise that God had given to Abraham fulfilled in a great nation, so they tried to take matters in their own hands. They had Abraham lay with Hagar, and they got Ishmael. This union produced the father of the Arab nations. But God was going to make a significant point to Abraham and a significant point to Sarah, especially that would transmit down, through the, transmit down through the ages and ultimately serve as an illustration for Paul to grab in this text. Two millennia later, even to us. The point is simple but profound. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping person. At the heart of this text here in Romans 4 is God's promise. Said another way, it's God's credibility, his faithfulness, his believability, his trustworthiness. This was what was at stake when Abraham and Sarah chose to believe that God would give them their own son. And this is the issue that Paul takes as an illustration and brings into Romans 4 related to the gospel. The same truth stares at us in the face this morning. Is God's credibility such that we can entrust our souls to a promise that doesn't make sense intuitively? That doesn't make sense according to reason? That doesn't make sense according to calculus? That principle in Abraham and Sarah is drawn out and said that's the same principle of believing the promise of God that's at stake in a person going to heaven. He talks about true faith. So let's dissect this Romans 4, 18 through 21. And so as we do so, we'll find two marks of true faith. Two marks of true faith. These were marks for Abraham and they were equally marks for us in the gospel as well. Because remember, please remember, this entire study of Abraham in chapter 4 is only an illustration. I think if Paul were here, he would say, if you really want to study Abraham, go to Genesis. I'm just using Abraham illustratively on what it means to believe the gospel and the gospel alone, and that God saves and credits righteousness to a believer through faith, through believing God. 
The first mark of true faith is in verses 18 and 19. True faith transcends human reason. It transcends human reason. Now we can move quickly through this text because we've already looked at the background. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken so shall your descendants be. Now, before we get into the nuances of this, let's look at what Genesis said and what this text quotes Genesis is saying about many nations. Um, Paul has been very critical with the Jews uh, from chapter 2 through chapter 3 into chapter 4 that you're not the only ones, the Jewish nation, who just because you have the law, you don't have the only angle at God. And he goes all the way back to Abraham and says, Abraham is said not only to be the father of the Jewish nation, but what does this text say? God promised that he would be the father of many nations. How? Through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would draw to himself from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Abraham was given a promise from God in Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6. We already read it this morning. He had the unusual record of God promising something to this man that was beyond reason. So let's ask a question. What did Abraham believe? He believed that God would give him an heir from his own body. Now, Abraham made a mistake with Hagar and Ishmael. We understand that. That's for another study. But when the angel came back in Abraham's 99th year, his 100th, approaching his 100th birthday, Abraham said, I'm going to believe that you're going to do this your way supernaturally without me coming and adding my own ingenuity and cleverness. Remember Genesis 15, he took him outside, look at the heavens. He believed in the Lord and God, counted, reckoned, declared him righteous. He believed something true about God and God made a moral declaration about an immoral sinner I will declare you righteous. He didn't make him righteous in the sense that he would never sin again. He declared him righteous. In heaven, because of your faith and what I am and who I am and what I've done, I am going to make your account in heaven righteous, not guilty, perfect, able to enter into heaven. Look at verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith... He contemplated his own body. That was, not, not, uh, that, that was impossible not to do. Look at how he talks about himself and how Paul talks about it. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Remember the situation. That day when the Lord came to Abraham to tell him how the promise would be fulfilled according to Genesis 18, 12, Sarah was worn out. Abraham was old. They were beyond fertility. Sarah was not worn out from childbearing. She'd never given birth. Her womb had been barren her entire life. That's what Genesis eleven thirty 30 says. Now, graphically, Paul said her womb was dead and that Abraham's body was as good as dead. What does that mean? Just in reference to having children. The point was, it was beyond Abraham's experience and beyond Paul's experience that someone would live that long, A, and have a child in those older ages, 
be. The whole point of that narrative is for us to consider what it would mean for a couple approaching the hundred year of the century mark to be informed that many nations were about to spring forth from them when they had never had a single child together. Here's the reality. All the arguments of sense worked against that promise. All the arguments of reason worked against that promise. All of his experience in seeing people have children and stop having, stopping to have children when they got older worked against that promise. He had, here's the key, no reasonable hope to believe that that was true. It was beyond human reason. But against all reason and all the reasons to doubt, he hoped against hope. We have that in in English literature today. It comes from this passage. He hoped against hope. He believed in a hope that was supernatural, not his own human understanding. And that hope bloomed just as his faith did from the consideration of God's credibility, the consideration of God's power, the consideration of God's character. God doesn't lie. Namely, that he would indeed become the father of many nations. You know, it's just a little aside. When you see all that Abraham went through to believe that God would do this, that God would say this, that, that he would experience this. And then you fast forward to Genesis 22, and when God says, take your son, Isaac, your only son whom you love, and go up on Mount Moriah and, and kill him, does that even have more gravitas? God, how will I be the father of many nations through this child if I kill him? Hebrews 11 says, well, he considered that God was even able to what? Raise the dead. So God granted him grace, enabling him to believe, get this, to believe against his natural hope. To hope divinely against natural hope humanly. To go beyond reason. True faith in Abraham and true faith in the gospel transcends reason. We've saying, been saying over and over throughout the study that if you don't get to the point, reading Romans, reading Romans 3 and 4, where you get to the point where you say, That doesn't make sense. Remember, this is an illustration. He's not teaching us a a Sunday school lesson about Genesis. This is illustrating the gospel. He's saying, if you can't get to the point where you really understand, this doesn't make human sense. That God would take his son, his only son whom he loved, crucify him on a cross, raise him from the dead, and say, I will give you, the sinner, his righteousness and take your sin and crucify it through his death. And all you have to do to get that is, drumroll, believe it. If you haven't come to the point where you said, that's, it can't be. There's, there's got to be more to it than that. Then you haven't understood the gospel. It's that simple. We don't contribute anything. And the illustration here with Abraham's life is perfect. When he tried to add his ingenuity, how did that work out? We have the Arab-Jewish conflict over the centuries because of his own ingenuity. He chose his way. Here's the thing. 
not distinctive from God's way. He chose his way in concert with and thinking it was God's way. Now, that's the same thing that Paul is teaching here. It's by faith. He believed. True faith transcends human reason. If you think this is going to make a lot of sense, just sit back and worship. It's too good. It's too good to be true on a human level. Why? I mean, this, this sounds, it's incomplete though without the second mark of true faith. True faith transcends human reason. Number two, true faith rests in God's credibility. God's credibility. If it was just us, if, if, if true faith was just if you believe strong enough it will come to pass, then just sit in the back and, and think about believing in unicorns for the rest of your life and see if that creates a unicorn. It's not about our faith, it's about God's promise and God's credibility. Verse 20. Yet, with respect, in, 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 in reference to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. One of the great debates in, in the commentaries when you read about this passage is, Hang on, how can, how can Paul say this is true of Abraham when Ishmael happened, right? Did he not waver in unbelief at some point? Of course he did. But once the, that angel came, probably the pre-incarnate Christ in Genesis 18, from that point on, after his laughter, he chose to believe. He chose to believe, and he did not waver in unbelief. There's a, such a picture there of us to waver, to be wishy-washy in unbelief. Paul says later, to be tossed about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, to be unstable in all our ways, James says. We all understand what it means to waver in unbelief, don't we? I mean, don't you? You ever doubt you ever doubt God? I was talking with a gentleman. Uh, I was away at a retreat uh, the last two days and was talking to a guy who was just wonderfully honest. And he says, Rick, I, uh, I really struggle with my faith. And I said, well, me too. Well, good job. Let's go to lunch. We're not going to have a, much of a discussion after this. But he says, no, no. He says, I, I lay in my bed sometimes and I really ask myself, is this true? Is this really true? And his question was this. Am I wrong to ask that question? Can I tell you what I told him? No. You're not wrong to ask that question. You're wrong to give the wrong answer. We live by faith, not by... Isn't this whole world an attempt for us to try to live by sight, though? Had a guy, never forget it, his name is Todd witnessing to him in high school. He was on my wrestling team, and uh, he was resistant at every level to my gospel appeals. And at one point, we were sitting in the cafeteria. It was at break. We were having a sausage and biscuit. I remember it just like it was yesterday. And he says, look, I, I don't think God is real. I said, well, why? that's a big statement, Todd. How can you say God is not real? He says, I can prove it. And I said, you can, you can prove God is not real. That's, that's a pretty profound statement for an 11th grader. He says, yeah, 
And he's dead serious. He looks at me and he says, Rick, I have, I have sat in my bed since you've been talking to me about this for the last two weeks and every night before I turn the light off, I just say, God, please, if you're real, will you just jiggle the curtain? If you'll jiggle the curtain, I will know you're real. Now, we can kind of look with derision at that. We can laugh at that. He was having a crisis, and it was a good kind of crisis. He was saying, I want to believe based on sight, not based on faith. These next two verses are so instructive. By the way, look at the the last part of verse 20. He didn't waver, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. How do you grow strong in faith? By, By doing it for God's glory, not your own curiosity. We also find out here that he grew strong in faith. Faith is something in which you have to grow. No one believes, and they have what we sang about, the the faith to move a mountain. That doesn't happen on day one of Christianity. Faith is a spiritual muscle that must be exercised. You know how God often increases our faith? James 1. Trials, right? Verse 21, and being fully assured. What a great word. Fully convinced, fully assured. that God had promised, what God had promised, he was able to perform. Now we find the crux of the issue. Anytime you see the word able in the same sentence with God, you need to stop the presses. He has assurance that God was able. Now we come into God's power, his credibility. So it's credited to him as Righteousness. This is the key for getting a grip on what Paul is saying here, especially on this passage. Two things stand out in these verses. The power of the promise of God, and that involves believing it and knowing it, knowing it and then believing it. You know what God has promised, and you believe it. Abraham had to know that God had made a promise before he could believe it. And our transfer, remember this is an illustration. What is it illustrating? If we don't know God's promises, especially in the gospel, we will never have successful, healthy faith in believing those promises, which means we have to feed our mind with those promises, which means this is the Read Your Bible More Sermon again. Oh, I've heard it. I've, I've had discussions with family members. I've had discussions with friends. I've had discussions with my own soul. Why is my faith lacking? Why is it so hard to believe? Why am I struggling? You know what the answer is almost every time? Because we're not feeding our mind God's word. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know that I, that I have enough faith to do that. Just put your face in that book. This is a divine, supernatural document that will change the way you think. It will change what you believe. And it will give you hope that transcends what you think and reason. If left without God's word, you'll doubt it. I promise, you will doubt. You'll waver in unbelief. The power of God's promise is incredible. Look also at the the need to grow in faith. There's such a thing as weak faith and strong faith. Growing in faith is outlined there in verse 21. You be assured of God's promise and you're confident that God is able to fulfill what he has promise. Listen, can I ask you just a penetrating personal question? Have you ever, do you ever stop and struggle with your assurance of salvation? 
Do you ever say, I just don't know if I'm saved. There's no way if a person was, if I was saved, I would do what I do. And and there's no way I would not do what I'm supposed to do. And, And I just feel like, oh, wretched man that I am. Well, we're going to get there in chapter 7. Can I just encourage you, when your faith is weak, it's because the promise of God in your heart is not shining strong enough. So we need to believe and read God's promises. Fully assured, are you kidding me? Abraham was fully assured. How can you become fully assured? You don't read, you don't become fully assured with your Bible in the other room. At stake here in sola fide is God's credibility. If God promised, if God promised this, I will take care of sin by crucifying my son. I will declare you righteous by his righteousness. And if you will believe that, I will change your heart, give you a new life, and raise you from the dead like him. If you believe that, then you're saying that God's credibility is trustworthy. If you doubt that, that's not on you and me. That's stiff-arming God and saying, I don't believe what you said about what you did is credible. This passage informs us Abraham did not waver, obviously, after the three men came. But he did struggle. He did struggle. There's a difference between wavering and struggling. You know that? I think we, we all struggle, but wavering brings the struggle back into the current of God's thought and God's word and God's thinking and says, I don't really understand, but I will believe. That great, oh, I love the, the, the difference that uh, Augustine made when he said, we have it wrong. Uh, this was just three centuries after Christ. He says, most people think that faith is like this. You understand so that you believe. You figure it out and then you believe. He said, no, no, friends, we have it all wrong. You believe so that you understand. What makes us believe? Not human reason, not logic, not cleverly devised arguments. God makes us believe. God's credibility is what we believe. Now remember, this is all only an illustration, Abraham is, of the faith in the gospel and God's working in it. That's what that last phrase is all about. He declared him Righteous. He credited, it's an interesting word. It's the word imputed. We found imputed all the way through this passage. We'll find it more in chapter 5. He takes perfection, non-guiltiness. Can I say that? Not guiltiness, innocence. And takes that and says, that's yours. And then takes sin and says, I'm not going to dismiss that. I am going to punish it fully with my full wrath by crucifying my own son in your place. I don't want to take the time now, but the the substitutionary atonement, what we just described of Jesus, is under serious attack in scholarly realms. And when it's under attack in scholarly realms, it's usually a decade, then it filters down into the church. We need to hold tight to substitutionary atonement. 
covering of our sins, substitutionary atonement of our sin. Because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Go to 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, actually, people, if you use your own reasoning, you think it's what? Foolish. You're going to be saved. You're gonna be, you think you're going to be saved by a crucified criminal on a cross who said he was the Messiah. Really? That's what the Romans said. And Paul says, I love this, God used the foolishness of God to shame the wise. The question this passage, that this passage raises is whether or not you have true faith. These marks were in Abraham. These marks are essential to salvation. That your faith in the gospel transcends human reason. And your faith in the gospel is resting entirely on God's credibility to promise and keep a promise. You say, well, I need some more definition. Okay, let me give you a preview of next week. Verse 23. Not only for his sake, Abraham's, was was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake, to whom it shall be credited, as those who believe, not about a child coming, here it is, in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. A few weeks ago, I thought we could do those, passages, those verses with the ones we just did. And said, no, we, we, we're not gonna be able to do that. So you have to connect them but it's an illustration. Abraham is just an illustration of what it means to believe God, believe God's promise, take him at his word because he is credible and see your life changed completely. Has your life been changed by Jesus Christ? Do you believe the unbelievable? Do you believe that God would save you because you believe what he's done for you? Is, is that just overwhelming? Do, do you want to know what that means? Well, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and afterwards, prayer room to my right is going to be open, and some men and women will be there to be able to talk to you about your soul. Don't leave. Look, lunch is not that important. You'll have lunch tomorrow, too. Don't leave without settling the issue of being right before God. Please, please, I'm begging you, don't leave without making sure that you stand before God based on Christ's righteousness and not your own. None of us will stand in that equation. Father, we're, we're humbled that you, over the last two chapters, two and a half chapters, really have said the same thing in every single paragraph, and yet each angle of looking at sola fide is so fresh, We want to have faith like Abraham, but our faith is not in you giving us a son. Our faith is in the son you gave. The believers who are here, Lord, we need our faith to be grown. You've told us that faith has, the nature of faith is to grow. Give us the data that informs it and instructs it and matures it. And oh God, please, Please open the eyes of those who have yet to believe, those who are curious about who you are and what you've done, those who want to have 
salvation from your wrath and those who want to have purpose and meaning in this life. Father, please grant faith. Turn on the light switch where they see the glory of Jesus and his good news. We come to you today in prayer because you've made access, Lord Jesus. And we're coming in your name because of who you are and what you've done. Amen. Well, like I said, we were gonna, I was going to try to do the whole chapter at one, the, whole, the rest of the chapter at one point, but uh, we're going to talk next week about the power of resurrection. Can I give you a little head start? If you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't have any Christianity. Pretty simple. Uh, so uh, next week's going to be a lot, of, a lot of fun looking into that. Like I said, our prayer room is open. Bob and Kathy are over there. We'd love to talk to you, pray with you. If you have a burden we can share uh, to carry with you, we would love to. Let's stand together, and I'll dismiss us. Please come back tonight. Uh, very important stuff. There's some special announcements. Will that get you to come back uh, that we're going to make tonight? Um, not any big special announcements. I just want you to come tonight. So, uh, Father, dismiss us with thoughts of the Savior for his glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.